Hello everyone, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And today's show is about phantoms and demons that sometimes exist inside a person's mind. If it could not be witnessed, heard, or seen by others, these individuals would find themselves committed to asylums. Many of them started around the time of the American Civil War in order to address the ever-increasing population of those left destitute through unfortunate circumstances or mental illness. In the end, we will find that even after death, they sometimes remain behind, where they lived for the majority of their lives with their hope of rejoining society left unfulfilled. The story is about the Willard Asylum for the Chronically Insane. Uh, this was located next to Lake Seneca in New York. It was a 440-acre grounds, which were first purchased in 1853 with the idea that it would become the Ovid Agricultural College, where men returning from the Civil War could learn farming skills. However, the program was unsuccessful, and only a few months after reopening, the campus was abandoned. It was in that year that Dr. Sylvester D. Willard, the Surgeon General of New York, uh, which had condemned the deplorable conditions of county-run almshouses uh, where people with mental illnesses, developmental disabilities, chronic addiction, and epilepsy and birth defects were being housed. Uh, at that time, uh, President Lincoln was the one that signed the bill for Dr. Willard's uh, proposal. And it was within that process just within days of the president signing the bill that Dr. Willard died of typhoid fever and the asylum was named in his honor. Now, the asylum uh, welcomed its first patient in 1869 and it was a lady by the name of Mary Rote. She arrived by steamboat at the Ovid Landing on Seneca Lake and she was the first to arrive and Dr. Hoyt, who was the secretary of the board, uh, claimed that she was deformed and demented and chained at the wrists. She was being moved over from the Columbia County Poorhouse, where she was found bound, naked, and crouched in a corner of a five-foot cell without any covering or even a bed. She had been confined there for over 10 years. Now, Mary died at Willard in January of 1876 of tuberculosis. However, by that time, she had become a role model for patients in years to come. Uh, one of her doctors, by the name of Dr. Chaplin, stated that since her admission, she had been daily dressed and at all times presentable. Her general appearance and habits of cleanliness are much improved. It appears that this move for Mary turned out to be a beneficial one. Now the theme of horrific neglect would follow for other patients that were admitted later on. One girl had been shackled in a cell since childhood. Another patient arrived at Willard in a chicken crate. The dreadful situations that the patients were arriving in uh, coupled with a lack of understanding of mental disability meant that Willard essentially became a dumping ground for undesirables. Patients' afflictions range from severe mental and physical handicaps to nervousness, chronic to acute insanity, feeble-mindedness, and lunacy. In other words, you had people there 
that could be violently insane to a person that maybe was just nervous or high strung. Now, the asylum was built in the same style as many other Victorian institutional facilities. Uh, the campus was divided between a woman's side and a man's side with violent and nonviolent patients. Now, the administration building sat in the middle. The land had originally been designated for agricultural purposes, so the hospital ran its own farm with crops grown and tended by patients. Patients were unconfined, able to walk about as they please, though they were unable to leave the premises. There was a bowling alley, a movie theater, and a gymnasium, and patients took part in camp-like activities like sewing classes. It was a hospital, though. It was still a hospital. And there were entire buildings devoted to treatments like electroshock therapy and ice baths, as well as operating theaters and a morgue. A cemetery on the grounds feature markers with numbers, no names, for the thousands that were buried there throughout the years that it was open. Now, Willard Asylum discharged its final patient in 1995 and shuttered its doors for good. Now, some of its buildings are used as training facilities and dormitories by the Department of Correctional Facilities, which maintains the grounds but many of them have been left to rot for so long that they are totally unusable. In these, asylum life has been preserved and the artifacts left behind by staff and patients. At that time, the world didn't know what to do with people who could not fit into the social norms of the 19th century, so they were often shelved away into institutions. Though the people who lived and died at Willard have faded into the tapestry of history, their belongings left behind at the abandoned asylum boldly assert their existence. And now we come to the second part, which is a extraordinary find of suitcases that were discovered after it closed down, which were untouched from the moment that these patients arrived, some of them hoping at some point to leave, but they never did. They had organized them, the men's on the left, the women's on the right, alphabetized, labeled, and covered by bird droppings. From the clothing and personal objects left behind, we can gain some understanding of who these people were before they disappeared behind hospital walls. More importantly, why were they committed to this institution? And why did so many stay for so long? Some of the patients had been transferred from other asylums. Others were committed by the courts due to unemployment, the death of a loved one, loneliness, poverty, or some other catastrophic event. Others were committed by families who brought them there. Now, what seems apparent after examining the contents is that many thought that they were going to be there only for a brief stay. For others who suspected their stay might be longer, the results were sometimes their ultimate choice, such as what happened in October of 1905 when 41-year-old Mrs. Theodore Stryker, who had been visiting her husband with her husband, uh, her brother's farm in New York, and one day she disappeared for only a few minutes, going to the barn, and then her family found her dead hanging from one of the rafters. She had a broken neck, 
but she wanted to make sure she died and she had plunged a butcher knife into her chest. Apparently the trip to New York was to commit her in a few days to Willard Asylum. The people that spent all these uh, decades at Willard Asylum, most of them did die there. Uh, they were basically discarded by society, but each of them had a fascinating and often heartbreaking personal story. Uh, many of them before they came to Willard had careers, families, artistic and intellectual aspirations, and many of them had dealt with significant personal losses. Uh, now each of their stories provides an opening uh, into looking at that these people were just not numbers that even though they spent the majority or possibly the rest of their lives after they got there behind the hospital walls, there was more to them than just someone that had been placed there because they had been forgotten. Uh, and ultimately, and in some cases, uh, the ways that the psychiatric system had failed them because uh, as you will see some of them were trying desperately at point at some point to try to gain re-entry back into society uh, now let's look at the the first person all right is a lady or was a lady by the name of Fraulein Teresa also known as sister Marie Ursline and Due to privacy, uh, they're just we're just using their first names, and as you could see, they were all assigned, of course, a number. And she was born in a small Bavarian town in 1896. And when she was 16 years old, she was recruited by Mother Antonina Fisher to go into the Dominican Sisters, and then she was brought to America. And she took her vows in Brooklyn in 1898 and became known as Sister Marie Ursuline. Now she joined a small band of nuns who went west to build a mission in North Dakota. However, the frontier conditions were very, very harsh and eventually the mission failed and Mother Antonina was forced from her leadership position. And this became a widely publicized scandal in the church. Uh, and powerful Vatican officials suppressed the initiative of an energetic mother superior. In other words, the Vatican wanted full control over any new orders or convents or missions that were being opened in the United States during those years. Uh, now, Sister Marie uh, could not pledge obedience to her new superior, and she returned alone to New York City in 1917, finding refuge as a boarder in her former mission house. She wrote to her father asking for help to get back to Germany, but her letter was returned due to wartime mail restrictions. Remember, this is World War I, and at this time Germany was held in very high suspicion. Uh, now, she was no longer known as Sister Marie, and she was plagued by spiritual concerns for which she could find no relief. Uh, she was admitted to Manhattan State Hospital in June of 1918, 
where her religious background was thought to be a figment of her imagination. And in her admission interview, she told the doctor, I don't hear voices. I don't see visions. I feel silly. I am not crazy. I am nervous. I had an operation for gallstones three and one half or four and one half years ago in North Dakota. I live at 140 West 61st Street with the Sisters of the Sick Poor. I was stubborn. I did not want to steal. I got excited over the war. I'm all mixed up. I feel downhearted. Eight months later, at the age of 39, Teresa was sent to Willard. And her records mentioned that she once lived in a Catholic mission, but they lent no credence to her religious background and her quest for dispensation. They referred to her as noisy, resistive, ugly, and delusional. Being completely dismissed as a former nun and traumatized by the harsh reality of her life at the institution, Teresa retreated into alternate identities, one of which was a nine-year-old girl. She was ravaged by physical ailments, and she died at the age of 69. And her body was used for scientific purposes, which, by the way, that was sometimes uh, very customary in different asylums throughout the country where there was no family to claim the body. The second inmate that we're going to talk about at Willards was Mr. Lawrence, who was born into a poverty-stricken family in Galicia, which was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And at one time, he served in the Royal Austrian Army when he was a young man. And after he was discharged, he became a licensed tinker. In other words, he was an itinerant uh, tradesperson who collected scrap metal and repaired metal objects. At this about 1900, uh, there were three events that changed his life. First, he had a head injury from a stone that was thrown at him. Uh, he started engaging in binge, binges of heavy drinking. And this was also when he had his first admission to a mental hospital in Dusseldorf, Germany, where he was noted to be singing, whistling, and generally noisy. However, he remained there for less than one year. Now, in 1907, he moved to New York City and he found work as a cleaner and a window washer at Bellevue Hospital. And he lived on site in one of the worker dormitories. And uh, in 1916, he was taken across the street to the hospital for being loud, boisterous, singing, shouting, also praying, claiming to hear the voice of God and seeing angels, and then again accused, accusing himself of having sinned too much. Uh, there was mention made of alcohol as a serious precipitant. And later that year, he was transferred to Central Islip State Hospital, where he was reported to be extremely restless and noisy, singing and shouting and whistling in a boisterous manner. And then it was in 1918 that he was sent to Willard. Now, for several years after he was admitted there, uh, Mr. Lawrence was reported to be volatile and difficult and somewhat reclusive. However, by the early 1930s, it became clear that he was a good worker if he was left to himself. And he served as a cleaner in the superintendent's house. And in 1937, he became the hospital's unpaid grave digger. Uh, 
and in this role he was given some relief from the stifling routine of life on the wards. During the warm weather he was permitted to live in a shack on the cemetery grounds, returning to the hospital only for meals. In a 1945 letter that he addressed to the superintendent, uh, he requested his release and he noted on there that he had dug over 600 graves by hand in eight years. Uh, Mr. Lawrence did continue his work until a few days before he died at the age of 90 in 1968 and he was buried anonymously in the very cemetery that he had attended uh, and it seems that perhaps after spending so many years there inside the walls of Willard where he didn't have access to alcohol this is what made the difference for him to behave normally which makes you wonder if given the opportunity to exist outside of Willard if he would have been okay and it seems that based on what uh, they're describing that that was a very good possibility okay uh, off to the next patient uh, his name was Senor Rodrigo or Mr. Rodrigo and he was born in the Philippines he came from a very prominent upper-class Filipino uh, family and in 1907 he arrived in America to attend school in Salt Lake City. Uh, the United States had been occupying the Philippines since the Spanish-American War and Rodrigo took an active interest in the Filipino independence movement and he corresponded with other activists and he also wrote letters to various newspapers. He moved to Chicago then went off to Buffalo where, for reasons unknown, uh, despite the fact that he was an educated man, he worked as a domestic for one of the city's leading doctors. Now, during this time, uh, Rodrigo considered becoming a Methodist minister, but he grew depressed and he often complained that his spirits, that spirits, as in ghosts, were plaguing him, that he heard voices that accused him of being a sinner. And his employer ironically, was the one that had him committed to Buffalo State Hospital in 1917 at the age of 29. Now, in October of 1919, uh, Rodrigo was transferred to Willard State Hospital. And the records from 1935 describe him this way. He readily converses with anyone, sociable, very well-behaved, polite, mannerly, cooperative, clean and neat, never causes trouble, very willing to help with yard work, takes an interest in life, plays checkers, reads books, or writes simple poetry. The staff at Willard remained impressed with Rodrigo's knowledge of classical music and poetry, even with his heavy accent. In the late 1960s, Rodrigo was offered the chance to live in a group home, but he declined and the following observation was placed in his file. It appears that after years of being institutionalized, which now appear to have been a mistake as far as the duration is concerned, this man appears in perfect mental condition now. As Rodrigo grew older, he lost his sight and was moved to a ward for blind patients. And he died in 1981 at Willard and was buried in an unmarked grave in nearby Ovid Union Cemetery. So again, uh, Unfortunately, after being there so many years, uh, 
when in other words they finally realized that maybe they he would have been okay outside he was so used to being in those walls and probably losing his sight he just stayed there until his death in uh, 1981 Okay, uh, the next patient is Miss Margaret, and she was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, and according to her aunt, she was a bright and happy girl who suffered misfortune after misfortune. Her father, a merchant seaman, had died of tuberculosis when she was seven years old, and her mother soon remarried. Three years later, authorities accused her mother of neglecting Margaret and her sister Marie and placed the girls in an orphanage. At the age of 20, Margaret entered nurses training at London's Northeast Metropolitan Hospital. And after completing her studies, she worked there from 1914 to 1918 and uh, where she witnessed the damage suffered by the hospital during World War I during the German bombing raids. Uh, her fiance was killed in France within weeks of going to the front. Afterwards, she immigrated to the United States, and in 1921, she enrolled in a graduate nursing study at Women's Hospital in New York City. Now, while training there, Margaret sustained a serious head injury, and her recuperation took months. She worked at Women's Hospital until July of 1925, when she contracted tuberculosis and spent much of the next six years in TB facilities. And there she met a fellow patient, named Arthur Dargaville, who became a close friend. Uh, it's not clear whether the relationship was romantic, but Margaret's will found in one of her trunks listed him as her sole heir. Upon her rehabilitation, she could only find employment in TB hospitals, working in several such places across New York State. Miss Margaret suffered from numerous physical ailments during those years and also faced stress at work and in her personal life. Despite her history of illness and loss, she lived a full and often happy life during these years. She had a close circle of friends, traveled extensively, owned her own car, and made a good living. But after losing her long-term doctor and confidant, her employers sent her to a new doctor who felt her physical complaints were overshadowed by emotional problems. He had brought her to Willard on June 28, 1941. She took along all her earthly possessions, packed into 18 suitcases, boxes, and trunks. Margaret was 48 years old when she was committed to Willard. At her admission interview, she referred to herself as a fly in a spider web and agreed to stay only until a better place could be found for her but that never happened. Two of Margaret's devoted women friends, along with Arthur Dargavell, visited and wrote to her during the first 10 years that she was at Willard. However, during her 32 years there, Miss Margaret received no psychotherapy, but instead was given heavy doses of the tranquilizer Thorazine. According to the records, she spent her time knitting, crocheting, and reading Diagnosed with arteriosclerosis and other serious medical conditions, she was sent to uh, the medical-slash-surgical unit at Willard in 1970, and she remained there until her death on August 17th of 1973. 
Her grave is nearby at the Ovid Union Cemetery. The next patient uh, was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Herman, who was born in Brooklyn, New York. And at the age of 18 in 1902, is he uh, had his first seizure and was diagnosed with epilepsy. And um, possibly uh, they were thinking that this was a result of a surgery he had undergone when he was four years old. Uh, after the seizure, he was sent from his Brooklyn home to the New Craig Colony in rural upstate New York in 1908. The colony was the state's first attempt to understand and care for people with epilepsy. Uh, and uh, photography was an important tool uh, in the research. And within a few years, Herman uh, was closely assist assisting the colony's photography staff. By 1915, he was working as a photographer in his own right, taking pictures of the staff and his fellow patients. And he was very well regarded for his skills. He was described as a model patient, and he was largely free of seizures. By 1930, uh, he had spent most of his adult life institutionalized. Uh, however, he was described in his father as being depressed and uh, that he didn't communicate much. He was admitted to Willard despite the examining physician's statement that no reason could be found for this patient being at a state institution for the insane. Herman stayed at Willard for 35 years, but never again worked as a photographer. He was one of many Willard patients transferred for several years to the Sampson Division, a short distance away to help relieve overcrowding at the main facility. His records state again and again that he was indifferent and generally disinterested, though well-behaved and willing to help on the wards when asked. Apparently, he had no more seizures. When Mr. Herman was in his 70s, he was offered the opportunity to leave. Where would I go, he answered. No place to go. He stayed there until his death in November of 1965. His family had his body returned to Brooklyn, where he was buried in the Mount Olivet Cemetery. Very sad, very sad. Our next patient is a lady by the name of Miss Ethel. And Miss Ethel also has a very interesting story. Uh, she was born in New York, not too far from Willard. And she was the daughter of a Methodist minister. Um, as a child growing up, she sang in the choir, played the piano, was very active in church activities. And when she was 18 years old, she married a plumber named Seymour. And they soon had two children, a son in 1909 and a daughter in 1911. However, Seymour drank too much, flew into violent rages, and had affairs with other women. Ethel suffered two miscarriages and later bore two more children, both of whom died in infancy. After she left Seymour, Ethel supported herself as a seamstress. Her suitcase contained examples of high-quality needlework and a finely hand-sewn quilt, a beautifully embroidered baby gown, and intricately worked baby booties. In 1930, she was admitted to Willard. Her file states that she refused to leave the place where she was living 
and went to bed saying she was ill. As she refused to leave the house, the landlady made a petition for her commitment. Once admitted to Willard, Ethel denied having hallucinations, and she seemed to be amused at the notion that some of the patients heard voices. Notes from her file characterized her as a very social, over-talkative, neat, and well-dressed. She sometimes worked part-time in the Willard Laundry. At other times, uh, she was seen as sarcastic, irritable, and she refused to work. Uh, she often kept to herself reading and crocheting. Early in her incarceration, her grown children visited her three times, but never returned, even though her daughter-in-law worked at the hospital. In her 43 years at Willard, Mrs. Ethel never received any psychiatric medications. She died at the hospital on June 12, 1973, at the age of 82. Her brother had her buried in the family plot in Trumansburg. Incredible to think that your landlord could have you committed. The next story is about Miss Madeline, or Mademoiselle Madeline. Uh, Mademoiselle Madeline was born in a very well-to-do family in Paris in 1896, and she graduated from the Sorbonne. As a young woman, she journeyed throughout Europe and the United States, and many of her travel photographs were found in her trunk. After World War I, she left France permanently for New York, where she landed a good job as a secretary at the French Mission on War Debts. During the 1920s, she taught French literature at private girls' schools in Boston, Dallas, New Hampshire, and New York. She was an intellectual. Her trunk contained books on philosophy, literature, history, and music. And while she was in New York, she took advanced classes at Columbia University and at Hunter. Um... It was during these years that Madeline became increasingly drawn to the world of the occult, which seems to uh, alienate the friends she had, her co-workers, and her employers. And according to her files, her employers considered her odd, tactless, and domineering. Uh, over the years, uh, she would claim she was troubled by psychic associations and that she would suffer from unwelcome feelings that she could communicate telepathically with others. Uh, during the Depression, she was unable to find steady work. She became destitute and was referred to the Emergency Work Bureau. Once there, they found her unemployable, and she was referred for outpatient mental health treatment, which led to her 1931 admission to the psychiatric unit at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan. Um, she constantly refused to submit uh and uh, she clearly assumed that she was, uh, in other words, that it was a voluntary admission to Bellevue on her part, that it would be temporary. And she never expected to be shipped off to Willard in 1939 after passing through Central Islip and King's Park State Hospital in Long Island. While at Central Islip, Madeline fiercely stated, I want out of here immediately. I think it is an outrage to be brought here. 
1965, she was still demanding her release. Records indicate that she told a staff member, I don't like this hospital. I resent being detained and wasting my time. Madeline was given antipsychotic drugs. In the mid-1950s, she developed what later came to be known as tardive dyskinesia or TD, a debilitating movement disorder caused by the drugs. In 1970, her files state that she had fidgety movements, rigid stances, facial grimaces, which they did not describe to the medications. Instead, they prescribed attitude therapy to get her to stop making facial grimaces. At the age of 79, Mademoiselle Madeline was sent to a private boarding care facility near the hospital. She died in October of 1986 in Seneca County at the age of 90. And her burial place is unknown. Uh, the next person is Mr. Dimitro. Okay. Mr. Dimitro, just like all the other patients, had uh, a very unusual background and also, unfortunately, what appears to be bad luck. He was born in 1916 into a poor Ukrainian farm family and uh, his father died two years after he was born. Uh, now, under Nazi occupation during World War II, Dmitri and countless others were forced into slave labor. At the end of the war, he tried to make his way home only to be captured by Soviet forces and sent to an internment camp in Hungary. He escaped and he made his way to Vienna and took refuge in an American displaced persons camp. There he met and married a Polish woman named Sophia and they both immigrated to America in 1949. They settled in Syracuse where they both found good jobs and a welcoming Ukrainian immigrant community. Dimitro started building them a house. Sophia became pregnant and their future looked very promising. To express his gratitude to his adopted country, Dimitri built a model of the Ukrainian church in his home village and delivered it to President Truman. The church was displayed in a government office in Washington for several years. However, soon after that, Sophia died during a miscarriage, and Dimitri's life began to crumble. In his grief over his wife's death, Dimitri came to believe that he was supposed to marry Margaret Truman, the president's daughter. He visited Washington, D.C. in 1952 and attempted to visit her at the White House. The U.S. Secret Service detained him and sent him to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington. He was returned to Syracuse and committed to Syracuse Psychopath Psychopathic Hospital before being sent to Willard in 1953. For several years, Dimitri languished at Willard. The staff had trouble understanding his thick Ukrainian accent and he was given 20 electroshock treatments, which did not improve his condition. In the early 1960s, he began to attend occupational therapy sessions, and it became apparent that he had a passion and talent for expressing himself through painting. According to staff, Dimitri painted a painting a day, chronicling the story of his life. His artwork was displayed local, locally at, at an exhibit of patient art in Washington, D.C., but few of his paintings have been found as he generously gave them away to staff who admired his work. Demetrio remained at Willard until 1977 when he was discharged 
into a county home at this facility and at a nursing home to which he was later moved he continued his painting decorating the walls of murals mr dimitro died in 2000 at the age of 84 and was buried in norwich new york the next person was a gentleman by the name of mr frank uh, mr frank uh, at one time was a soldier he was born in columbus ohio and um, the way he came to Willard is very interesting and unfortunate. Uh, on June 7th in 1945, he went to the Virginia restaurant on Fulton Street in Brooklyn, and he was served a meal on a broken plate. He becomes upset, and he caused a disruption outside the restaurant, yelling and kicking garbage cans. The police were called, and instead of arresting him, they bring him to the psychiatric ward at Kings County Hospital. And from there, they transferred him over to Brooklyn State Hospital. And on April 9, 1946, he was admitted to Willard, one of a growing number of African-American patients transferred to Willard from New York City in the 40s due to overcrowding. Uh, Mr. Frank was born in 1909 in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, when he came to Brooklyn, he was 20 years old. And uh, first, he, he found work as a chauffeur. He was also an amateur boxer. And then he enlisted in the U.S. Army in May of 1941 and received a medical discharge in 1944. And he came back to settle in Brooklyn. Uh, though the medical records show that he had no family ties, he kept in touch with his family in West Virginia and Ohio, including regular correspondence with his father. Some of these letters were found and his meticulously ordered trunk, along with a neatly pressed army uniform, family photos, and a baby shoe. The hospital staff worked hard to get Frank's trunk picked up from his landlady in Brooklyn, not because they were concerned about his access to his possessions, but because they wanted to get his army discharge papers so that he could be transferred to the Veterans Administration system. Mr. Frank never escaped the consequences of that day outside the restaurant in 1945. In 1949, he was transferred from Willard to the Veterans Administration Hospital in New York and in 1954 to the VA Hospital in Pittsburgh. He died there 30 years later, having spent more than half his life in an institution. Now, I've left one of the most interesting but very sad cases for last. This lady, um, it wasn't through the suitcases, but she did spend time at Willard. And um, this person's name was Lucy Ann Lobdell. She was born in December of 1829. Um, and when she was born, her parents were still in mourning for their firstborn infant daughter, so they pampered Lucianne, but allowed her to develop her adventurous spirit in the woods surrounding their home. Now, a few years after starting school, Lucy made the acquaintance of an illiterate young man named George Washington Slater, and he immediately becomes infatuated with her. Uh, however, about a month after 
they meet, Lucy's family moves away to Albany County. And then, to their surprise, 30 days later, this young man appears at their new home, which was 100 miles away from where he was living, intent on marriage. Uh, Lucy was distraught. However, her family's consented to the marriage, even though she was not in love with him. No doubt marrying her off as the eldest of the brood was the norm. And let's face it, they had other mouths to feed. She soon became pregnant, but the relationship soured rapidly. After one of her, their quarrels, he abandoned her with their two-month-old daughter, Helen. He left her without any money, uh, so she had no other recourse but to move to Long Edge, New York, back to her parents' house. Uh, by that time, her father had established a sawmill. However, when she got there, she realized that her father had become old and decrepit. And what she would do was she would help him out at the sawmill and she hunted for food. This was, uh, she had a very good ability that she had developed when she was young, when she lived in the woods. She was a very good hunter. <clears throat> now, it's around this time that she concludes that life as a woman is dreadful. So in October of 1854, she receives a letter from George Slater that he wants to reconcile. And she writes back to him telling him that he could come visit his daughter but she already had a plan because she was determined she was never going to see her husband's face again. So she decides to escape. She puts on a man's suit beneath her hunting outfit. And she just leaves home without saying goodbye. Uh, she goes off to Bethany, Pennsylvania, dressed as a man. And started calling herself Joseph Israel Lobdell. And sets up a music school and becomes a music teacher. During this time... She dates several young ladies who, of course, have no idea that that she's a woman. Um, and in the spring of 1855, she's actually engaged to a young woman who was a daughter of a leading citizen of the town. However, the relationship becomes to an abrupt end a few days before the wedding when an itinerant lumberjack recognized Lobdell as the famed female hunter missing from a long eddy. Talk about bad luck. Uh, it was stunning news and she had to flee the town after there were threats of being tarred and feather. And as a matter of fact, the one that warned her to get out of town was her fiance. So she takes a train. So summer of 1856, she hops a train and goes out westward to the Minnesota territory. She takes on a new name of Leroy, the king. And she's befriended by a frontiers man named Edwin Gribble. Uh, and she takes several jobs around town as a man again. Uh, and um, unfortunately, her ordinary life dissolves into a scene from one of her nightmares when it seems that a woman that she was pursuing tells authorities about the fact that this was not a man but a woman, and she ends up getting arrested and charged with falsely impersonating a man. Eventually, she's released from jail, and... Um, the town was very eager to expel what they called the wild woman and they agreed to pay her train fare back east. So she comes back to New York and she's in a very bitter mood. And her family, though they were happy she had returned, couldn't see why she still insisted on wearing men's clothes. And uh, her daughter, who was too young to, 
to understand what was happening, was very resentful that she had been gone so long. It wasn't long, though, before Lucy Ann decided that she was going to leave again. And in the summer of 1860, she's destitute, depressed, and she approached the welfare authorities of Delaware County and asked to be committed to the poorhouse. The institution offered only humiliation and regular meals. However, in the middle of this dull hell, she finds true love. She meets a girl by the name of Marie Louise Perry. She was a 28-year-old daughter of a prosperous Massachusetts family. And she had made the mistake of disobeying her father and eloping with a man who turned out to be a deceitful playboy. On their honeymoon in Jersey City, her new husband had run off with the landlord's daughter and just abandoned her to her fate. She was sick, penniless, and ashamed to return home to her parents, so she had her surrendered herself to the poorhouse. In uh, early 1862, both of them, Lobdell and Perry, decide to run away from the poorhouse. Uh, and shortly after their escape, they approach a justice of the peace who pronounces them man and wife. Unknowing that Lobdell's in reality another woman. And for the next 17 years, they lived together as a married couple. Uh, however, they were viewed as sideshow curiosities. Uh, for most of the 1860s and the 70s, they wandered across New York and Pennsylvania like nomads, uh, sleeping in caves and erecting rude cabins for shelter. It was also during this time that Lucianne started calling herself Reverend Joseph Lobdell, and she began preaching on in the streets. Um... However, like many of your attempts at self-expression, her preachings were mainly treated as evidence of her madness. Uh, during these years, her daughter Helen, who had been uh, basically divided from her parents, endured her own misfortunes. First she was raised by her grandmother and then by her aunt. And then she was finally adopted by a family in Honesdale, Pennsylvania was a former a farmer and forced her to work as a domestic servant a few years later she rejected a farmhand's marriage offer apparently he did not take it too well the rejection part and at age 17 Helen was beaten chloroformed raped and thrown into the Delaware River and left for dead uh, she survived but could remember little the farmhand and two others were arrested but nothing could be proved uh, now, again, during this, these years, Lucianne's husband, George Slater, had gone off to serve in the Union Army, and he was taken prisoner and died. She was eligible for pension, but she did not learn about it until 1877, 12 years after the end of the war. Uh, so, of course, she received a large amount of money from the back pay, and with it, she bought a farm right outside of Honesdale. Now, about a year after she becomes a landowner, she travels back to Hancock, New York, where her daughter Helen is living on one of her brother John's property. What exactly happened after she arrived in the town is unknown, but she would never return to her farm in Homesdale. Her brother John believed that his sister was insane for wearing men's clothing and pretending to love a woman. 
and she, he appeared to have persuaded Helen, her daughter, into sharing this view. And it's not really clear quite how they kept her in lob, uh, in Hancock, uh, away from Marie, and for more than two years. And in May of 1880, John petitioned the Delaware County Court to issue a writ de lunatico, which is to investigate the sanity of Lucianne Lobdell. A jury of 12 men found her mad. This was enough evidence for the law, and at age 51, Lucianne was carted off to the Delhi poorhouse and given a certificate of insanity. Uh, with her daughter Helen's written consent, John was named executor of Lobdell's estate. For the privilege, John had to pay $1,000 bond, and his motive for institutionalizing his elder sibling was nothing so simple as greed. Lucienne's fate was kept a secret from Marie and from the world. A fake obituary was released by her family that fooled the newspapers. Eventually, Marie moved back to Massachusetts and spent her final years working in a Whitman nail factory. She died in 1890, likely never knowing what became of her husband. From the Delhi poorhouse, Lucienne was taken to the Willard Insane Asylum in uh, New York. And Dr. Wise, who worked at Willard, observed that upon arriving at the hospital, she embraced the female attendant in a lewd manner and came near overpowering her before she received assistance. Her conduct on the ward was characterized by the same lascivious conduct and she made efforts at various times to have sexual intercourse with her associates. She later told Dr. Weiss that her mother had suffered from mental illness as well. Lucianne would spend the last three decades of her life in state mental institutions. She died in Binghamton Asylum on May 12, 1912. The cause of death was given as a manic depression psychosis and she was buried without a funeral in a pauper's grave. She had outlived her wife, her brother, and her daughter and the dozen honest men of Delaware County who declared her insane. Her estate worth $3,850 was split between two grandchildren she probably never met. Now, you might ask yourself, who were the people that would be sent over to Willard to begin with? Most of them were sent there under court orders or for other involuntary measures. And the criteria for commitment prior to the 1950s were rather loose and merely required a doctor's certificate that the person was mentally ill and in need of hospitalization. Who were these individuals and where did they come from? Upstate New York and the New York City metropolitan area was where most of them came from. Some were foreign-born and came either by themselves to the United States, many times leaving families in Italy, the Ukraine, Poland, Germany, all over the Europe, all over Europe. Uh, in majority, they were Caucasian Christians. Many of them had extensive work histories. Uh, some of them were married, had children, and a few had college degrees. Most of the patients stayed at Willard for several decades, averaging more than 30 years. 
uh, among the suitcase owners, the record is held by a woman who arrived in 1899 at age 26 and died at Willard 75 years later at the age of 101. Um, many of the people that w were sent to Willard were deemed incurable and in need of lifelong uh, institutionalization. This determination was never made formally, but especially if a person was transferred from another state hospital, it was likely that they would never leave. At admission, most of the suitcase owners were in situational crisis, uh, the death of a spouse or a child, uh, sudden unemployment. Um, all these um, situations could have been dealt with outside of an institution. While everyone admitted to Willard was given a diagnosis, the exact nature of their mental and emotional distress was rarely addressed in the records. The person's life circumstances, traumatic events, and the painful experiences that stood behind the labels were hardly engaged in any type of therapeutic discourse. Um, instead, these diagnoses were used to assign the person a poor prognosis. In other words, they were used to justify lifelong incarceration at the public's expense. Uh, there was a myth that these disorders were incurable. Uh, this, this dominated the mental health system in those years. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes the, even though the person might not have been incurable when they went into Willard, sometimes the effects of the drugs that they were given while they were there uh, made them, after many years, unable to go back into society. From the late 19th to mid 20th century, Willard offered little actual mental health treatment. There was custodial care, physical health care, work, and occasional entertainment. With the exception of hydrotherapy, submerging people for long periods of time in cold baths and electric shock, which began in the 1940s, there was no treatment. Uh, the introduction of neuroleptic drugs in the mid-1950s helped staff control patients who were crammed into ever tighter living quarters. But from the charts, we see little evidence that drugs improved people's mental and emotional states. When people were admitted to Willard, they were classified according to their ability to work. Patients deemed violent or unable to take care of themselves were placed in locked wards where life was very, very regimented. Of those willing and able to work, women were employed in cooking, cleaning, and sewing, while men did tasks like groundskeeping, carpentry, and shoemaking. For more than 100 years, Willard was heavily reliant on unpaid patient labor, which was finally banned in New York in 1973. Of the 54,000 individuals who passed through Willard during its 126 years of operation, 5,776 were buried in the graveyard tended by Mr. Lawrence. Another 18,000 died at the hospital and were either buried by their families in their hometown or at a community cemetery in nearby Ovid. Nearly half of the individuals who entered this sprawling facility left in a casket. And now we come to the most interesting part, as far as I'm concerned, which is, of course, is Willard Asylum haunted? Based on my own experience, uh, 
with uh, sites like this, even though I haven't personally been there, chances are that it's very not possible, probable, whether it's residual or intelligent. And even though many of the buildings are abandoned and derelict, there is still uh, at this time a 900 bed intensive boot camp style drug treatment center for men and women. It's a voluntary 90 day treatment program uh, which provides a sentencing option for people who've been convicted of a drug offense or if they violated their parole and instead of going back to the state prison uh, in most cases for more than a year they're allowed to participate in this program. Uh, very nearby where the asylum is is the cemetery which has over 5,000 souls many of which are said to haunt the asylum. Uh, they lived in obscurity, they died in obscurity uh, and there was this belief that once you entered Willard you never got out um, uh, and uh, one of the many ghosts on the premises seen on the premises is the spirit of a red-haired lady who the story goes was either a doctor or a nurse uh, before she arrived there and eventually she was driven mad and and went on to become a patient there. Uh, the build, as I said before, the building, the buildings now that are still um, that are still habitable are used by the New York Department of Corrections. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, many of the employees of the of the Department of Corrections are the ones that have had uh, ghostly experiences in modern times. Uh, and but otherwise it really should come as no surprise considering how many people uh, lived and died throughout the years the hundred plus years that it was in use uh, that it is haunted that there is paranormal activity uh, people have reported hearing screams uh, whispering voices again uh, the lady with the red hair she's also seen not only inside some of the buildings but on the grounds and even though she might be dressed as a patient again there's that persistent story attached to her that at one point she was either a doctor or a nurse there um, there's also a patient uh, who's seen staring out one of the the windows and one of the things that's associated with this woman uh, with the red hair or the long hair is that she lets out these screams and many times it's her in the middle of the night. Um, looking back at some other records there were besides the nurses there there were what were called lady physicians working at Willard. Uh, one of them was uh, what she, they called her Miss Dr. Farnham she was hired to replace a Miss Wilkins, a ladies physician who had resigned and she was moving out west. So the fact that yes that there were lady physicians who did work at Willard's. Uh, there's another report of a ghost that looks like a female teenager and she is seen to uh, in the hallways in a fetal position sucking her thumb uh, and if you approach her she turns towards you um, stares at you and starts to yell out obscenities and then she just vanishes. 
there's another sighting of what looked to be like uh, orderlies, two male orderlies. They're also seen looking out the window and they're described as ha having a very blank stare on their faces. Uh, they've seen, they've been seen so many times that there's even uh, a common uh, description. One is seen as tall and large and the other one is short and slender. Uh, there's also uh, sightings of orbs floating in the hallways, especially of different colors, so much so that they can be seen with a naked eye. Uh, there's reports of door slamming, uh, footsteps heard throughout the asylum, giggling, laughter, crying, whispering. Uh, some of them you could account for being residual considering who was housed there for so long, but maybe only part of them, the others might be uh, part of an intelligent haunting. Now one of the most disturbing figures that are reported is a demonic figure with piercing green eyes uh, and um, <clears throat> that later on uh, we'll get more into you know how, how that figure came up um, there's sightings of just hands floating in the air and uh, and they look to be like blistered hands and that's not unusual sometimes you will get ghostly manifestations where there's only a part of the body either the hands or the feet or the legs or there's people that have seen ghosts from the waist up and in some cases the really disturbing sighting which is just a head um, other visitors that have gone on there because there's there's been tours every once in a while they do have tours through these buildings um, there's residual images of patients being beaten by orderlies uh, now, in February of 2008, the show Paranormal State visited the asylum uh, due to claims of encounters by the present employees with the entities in the building. And as a result, the employees were refusing to stay there overnight due to the activity that they had witnessed. Uh, one of the, I guess, the managers for the department uh, took the team from a paranormal state went to the one of to one of the original buildings built in 1860 and um, originally it had been a dormitory wing for Willard Hospital and they were having some of their sergeants stay there I imagine these are the sergeants that participate in the boot camp treatment center uh, program uh, and both sergeants said that they heard a woman screaming and after that they pack and left after the next day in other words I guess they were the 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 program was offering to let them sleep and stay there versus having to travel home and after that at that experience they packed and left uh, another person said that in one of the classrooms they saw someone standing there uh, like a very slender person screaming um, there was another lady because there's uh, they in the program they were able to get a hold of either people that worked there still or had worked there even up to the time that it had been a hospital because it was an active hospital till 1995 uh, and one of the rec rooms person they claim that they have somebody standing over their shoulder uh, they hear or they see doors being pushed open they hear the locks clicking um, they did confirm that on occasion there had been suicide of some of the patients 
down in the lake. Seneca Lake is right there. It's adjacent to the grounds. As you could tell in some of the earlier slides, there was a steamboat that had pulled up to the dock. Um, they interviewed another gentleman who had worked at the hospital where he had, uh, they were searching for a female patient and he was the one to find her in a building in the back and she had hung herself. Um, during that program, they used a Frank's box to communicate and it came through with the name of Lucy. And when they asked the, I guess the superintendent about the name, he said that it was commonly uh, came up associated with hauntings. In other words, she appears to be a well-known ghost in the hospital. Whether this is the rare-haired lady or another patient or one of the lady physicians, we don't know. And the theory that they came up with at the end was that a demon, uh, and we're wondering, is that is is that the green-eyed thing that's seen, is holding the souls of these patients uh, hostage in the building. They also brought in Lorraine Warren, uh, who she herself immediately felt the presence of the demon. And she claimed that it was not allowing the spirits to move on. Uh, among other sightings, which I'm not surprised to hear, is that they have, they see shadow people there. Um, now, uh, I went in, and, and uh, like I said, there were so many people that came through the doors of Willard. Some of them left, most of them didn't. For example, I went back in um, to some of the records uh, from New York State, and for example, in 1884, it describes how in one year only they had 31 incidents of attempted suicides and or homicides that were documented there. Okay, and basically that says that uh, either they were suicides or hom attempted suicide, homicides, or both. And I guess, like I said, um, that's probably haunted absolutely as to who could be haunting it. It could be a cast of thousands. But I guess what you could ask yourself is because one of the if one of the identities that uh, when the crew from Paranormal State went there was that this ghost of whether she was a doctor or a nurse was basically helping uh, or guiding the lost souls that were there. And, and you can ask yourself, is that female ghost seen by so many people and possibly named Lucy and did be the spirit of a lady physician? Uh, an alienist who came back to protect those who lost their way after death from the demon that stalks the quarters of Willard Asylum, as she once did from those that tormented them in life? 